Good morning, Sanctuary. Today we are listening to the gospel parable that Jesus gives on the landowner and the laborers. And we find the in the story that the landowner, who is a symbol of God, um, comes to the laborers, asks them to come and work. And uh, he starts at like six in the morning, and then he goes out again at nine and gets some more people. They've agreed to work for a day's wages. He goes out again at, at noon and again at three in the afternoon, and then again at five, almost to the end of the day. And then as they come before him uh, to be paid, he asks for the people that started working the last at the five o'clock hour to come first, and then he pays them a day's wages all the way to the beginning. And when he gets to the earlier hours, they're thinking, well, certainly we'll get more. We worked longer. And yet they had agreed to work for a day's wage. So this is what they say in verse 10. The laborers are saying, the ones that had come early. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. Well, they feel like they've gotten taken, right? And it says, and when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner. And in the story, the landowner says, why are you complaining about my generosity? Isn't this what we decided on? I mean, there's some cultural issues here that we could dig into and exegete. Um, but what is interesting to me here is not that. I don't find that stuff that interesting. But what I do find interesting is that these people had feelings about money that's not unlike we moderns. We all have concerns about this issue of money and finances and the ability to take care of ourselves and those that we love. And I want to talk about that. Firstly, I love that God promises to be involved with us in this seeming very earthy, natural, um, carnal even kind of aspect of our lives, the physicality of our lives. But listen to Jesus on this point. This is a familiar passage. He says, this is in Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. And then he says, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? So he's saying, not to worry about your life as it is so easy to do. And he says, and why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is basically telling us not to live in fear or in worry about provision or about money in our lives. Um, I love Catherine Marshall. She's passed a number of years ago. She's a great author, um, Presbyterian lady. And um, she wrote this, quote, If we are to believe Jesus, his Father and our Father, is the God of all life and his caring 
and provision include a sheep herder's lost lamb, a falling sparrow, a sick child, the hunger pangs of a crowd of 4,000, the need for wine at a wedding feast, and the plight of professional fishermen who toiled all night and caught nothing. These vignettes, scattered through the gospel, are like little patches of gold dust that say to us, no creaturely need is outside the scope or the range of prayer, end quote. I love that. I love that somehow the story of God and God's engagement with humanity is one of the promise of provision and help to us. That doesn't say there are not times of, of deep lack and that economies don't sometimes crumble and, and famine comes. I mean, all that has been the part of the history of the world. But even in those times, um, God seems to lean in and to help people walk through things that give them some kind of an edge in their lives uh, as they walk through them. There's a text in Psalms where the psalmist says of the Jewish people, this is Psalm 66, kind of a complaint to God, you let people ride over our heads. We went through the fire and the water, but, the psalmist says, you brought us to a place of abundance. See, this is the idea that God is always with us, expanding and helping, even when things are hard. And I think abundance, this whole idea of uh, God helping us and prosperity, is, um, is relative. In other words, God's not working to make every person on the planet um, have to be financially powerful. I don't think that's the point at all. Um, I do think that God will help us flourish in whatever we have, right? That with our wages, whether you're a, a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker or a CEO of some great corporation, I mean, whatever place you find yourself I think God will enrich that place so that you flourish, where you smile at life more, that you love your life, and that you see more good in your life than you would have had you not been trusting in God in the midst of your situation. Whether you're making $25 a month or $25,000 a month, I think that God wants us to experience joy and abundance in that category that we find ourselves in in a way that's surprising to other people who are in the same category. The good news to the poor, that, and Jesus does say there is good news to the poor, is not just that God loves people and God loves the poor, but God loves to be engaged with and help the people who are in those contexts to do better and to be better. Even in the midst of poverty, God can lean in and help. When people of faith are in the harshest places, um, they still flourish. And uh, you should read the stories all through the historical record of these people who have been in dark places and joy and peace still comes in the midst of those harshest places because God's people do better. This is God's flourishing. This is God's help. And, and, and the idea is that you don't have to worry or to be in fear, because God is with you in whatever situation you're in. So here's the biblical claim. When you move toward God in trust, your horizons or your, your boundaries, they start to dissolve, and your limits start to lose strength. And somehow, when you move toward God in your heart, whatever situation you're in, you become more of a boundless being 
because you're connected to a boundless being and somehow increase comes, help comes. So I want, I want to give you, this is a little odd for me, I want to give you six secrets about how to experience divine provision. Now you know, if you, those of you that know me know I'm not big on secrets, I'm not big on steps, precisely because they try, it seems like those things give us more control than I think we really have. These are things that I have done and I've seen people do that seem to help. I, get, I, I would love for it to be exacting, but faith is just not exacting. We see through a glass darkly. So these are kind of a little bit fuzzy, but I have found them to be helpful. So that's what I'm calling them little secrets. I'll go through them fast. Um, but secret number one is if you want to see divine provision in your life, don't be lazy. <laughs> I know this is profound, but work hard. There's a text in Proverbs 24 where the Proverbs, the writer of the Proverbs says, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who had no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Back in the 80s, I was uh, driving down the road um, near where I was living in Wisconsin, in central Wisconsin. They're all farms all over the place. And as I drove by this farm, it just caught my eye. It was just gorgeous. The lawns were manicured. The fences were beautiful and painted. The barn was you know, it just had a logo. It was just gorgeous. The whole thing was just gorgeous. The animals that were out in the yard looked like they were ready to take to the uh, to the fair. I mean, they were beautiful. And then as I, I just noticed it, and then the very next farm, I looked at it, and the whole thing was disheveled. The, uh, uh, the house was disheveled. The barn looked like it hadn't been painted in years. The farm animals there out there had dung all over the sides of their body. I mean, it looked horrible. The fences were all uh, kind of in disrepair. And I kid you not, I, I looked at that, I observed that, and I heard in my heart, I believe it was the Holy Spirit, I heard in my heart, wow, God sure doesn't love that guy as much as he loves the, far, the guy that owns the farm ahead of this. And I, it sounded kind of snarky to me, and I kind of laughed out loud because I thought, I love that the Holy Spirit can be snarky sometimes. <laughs> I love that, that, that this idea that sometimes gets in our mind um, got busted, that just because, I mean, they have this, they're right next to each other, have the same properties, the same uh, ability to have something more, and yet one farm is at a completely different level than the other farm. Why? Well, I would guess that one of them watched more TV than the other one. I would guess that the one liked to take naps more than the other one. I mean, at the end of the day, work matters. What you do with your time matters. Um, what that means is being slothful will not make you flourish. I mean, it's one of the great deadly seven deadly sins is sloth. Hard work is not only just hard work on things, it's also doing hard work on yourself. Um, keep being a learner. Uh, add skills and education to your life. Stay interesting uh, as a person and keep growing. Uh, I'm 
I'm going to turn 65 here in a couple of months, and I'm just finishing my PhD, and I have an eye on this MA that I want to do, another MA. Uh, you don't have to do that. I'm not suggesting that by any means. I'm, I'm insane about that. But, but the statistics show that when you continue to grow in skills and grow in knowledge or grow just higher education, that kind of thing, uh, people end up with more opportunities in their lives. And they get paid more overall, and they actually live longer. I think it's important to be to work hard on yourself in your life if you want abundance, if you want any kind of divine provision. I, I think you need to make sure you're working hard. Now that being said, the second secret is don't work too hard. <laughs> I mean, you have to also embrace Sabbath because what Sabbaths do, Sabbath is a break from work. A Sabbath, the Jews did it once, you know, a full day once a week. And they even did it during the harvest. And when you have an agrarian culture, right, a farming community, taking a day off in the midst of a harvest could be catastrophic to your harvest, right? And yet they were told to do so. And the idea was that they were not to trust their hard work. They were to work hard, but not trust it. They were to give it as a seed to God, like the kid that gave Jesus the bread and the fish, and he feeds a multitude. That, that would have never done that. And we work hard realizing it's not that much, but we give it to God, and then we take breaks. We take Sabbaths, and we trust. It's one of the ways that we declare our trust to God. We're not just trusting in ourselves. And this is an odd thing in faith, because sometimes we're called to do things that seem contradictory. We're supposed to work hard, but not trust that we worked hard, right? That kind of thing. Um, as a preacher uh, over the years, I always work hard at trying to get my messages right. And I'll spend hours and hours and hours, uh, sometimes days, on trying to work on a message. But what I've learned to do, even from the time I was in my 20s, is not trust that. Because when I would work hard and try to trust in it and try to be smart and try to be entertaining or whatever I tried to do, it would just flop. It would suck. And I, and I, uh, so what I learned to do early on is I would, but if I just came and just off the cuff, that also sucked. It didn't work. You know, I'd, I had to work hard, but not trust it. And in the early days in the margins, I used to write out everything um, before the computer. But uh, I, I would write out my sermon and then in the margins, I would write, help please, God, come. I need you. <laughs> so what I was doing is I was bringing my best, but in the midst of it, I wasn't trusting my best. In other words, this kind of thing, Sabbath teaches you that. It teaches you to work hard, but not trust it, to stop. And what you discover is that God gives to you even in the stop places. And this is an important lesson to experience his increase in your life. Secret number three, be as generous as you can to not profits, to, uh, to your family. Um, don't be stingy. Uh, be giving and generous to people that are around you at work or other places that you're in. Just have a spirit of generosity. Um, be generous to yourself. Uh, don't be stingy with yourself. I mean, every once in a while, give yourself some extra perk, you know, whether it's a coffee or whatever it happens to be. Um, God doesn't bless stinginess. God loves a cheerful giver. It's a real secret to look at your life and ask, am I being stingy? Am I being fearfully grabby? And make sure you're not doing that. Secret number four is don't be too generous. 
<laughs> to non-for-profits or to the church. I mean, be generous, give and all that kind of thing, but don't give everything away. Don't be too generous to people around you trying to be a hero or something like that or daddy warbucks for people. Um, and, and, and especially don't be too generous to yourself. Don't buy everything you have a whim to buy. Uh, don't spend all that you get is the idea here. Proverbs 13 says, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, which means you and I are not supposed to spend it all. We're supposed to reserve some of it. All right, secret number five. Trust God for stuff. Um, when Gail and I first got married, uh, we were paid uh, under $4 an hour. You know, This was back in the 70s. And uh, we lived in a an uh, apartment that we called the palace. And uh, the reason we called it that was because it was totally anti-palace. It had slanted walls in all the rooms and uh, one heater. We're in Wisconsin, you know, it gets freezing up there. And there was one central heater, like a space heater thing in the whole apartment, right? It wasn't a huge apartment, but still it got cold on the edges and we found ourselves kind of centering around that, that um, space heater thing most of the time in the cold winter. And it cost us about $80 a month. Well, we had some friends in St. Louis who had got in a home and it was an amazing deal, rental deal. And they were telling us about it. And honestly, it made us a little jealous. You know, we thought, oh man, we have, you know, they were describing it and we're talking about our situation. We actually went to see their house. And then we're hearing the story. They said, well, you know, we started praying about it. We asked God to help us get something we could afford. And uh, we got this. It should have been a couple hundred dollars more. I think it was like $230 or something in St. Louis. It should have, but they were, it should have been somewhere in the 400s. But the point is, is that uh, when we heard that, Gil and I were pretty surprised. I mean, we had just never thought of talking to God about stuff. It just, I don't know, it seemed too worldly, seemed uh, too carnal, seemed like uh, somehow spirituality meant hard and always sacrifice. And certainly there is that in spirituality. But we decided, well, we looked at our situation. We said, well, what can we afford? And it was about $125. We thought we could do that. And so we started to pray, and uh, we looked at the paper every day. That was the internet back then, <laughs> 76, right? Um, we're looking at the uh, the paper every day, and on, on about the third or the fourth day when we're praying, we see no houses were being uh, rented for under 200-ish um, or more, and we see this little house for $125 a month, and we went, <gasps> <laughs> we thought, oh my God, what happened? So we run over to the house and we see it. It is, was this cutest house that was perfect for a new married couple. And uh, we actually, <laughs> some of you all know what I'm talking about. We actually did a you know, Jer Jericho march around it, thanking God that God had provided this house. So we go over to Mrs. Oligny's house. She was in her 80s. And we go over and say, we want to buy this, or we want to rent this house. And as we're sitting there, someone else called. It was a uh, professor in the local was coming to uh, work in our little uh, junior college that was in it was in Marshfield, Wisconsin, and she's sitting there and she's talking and we could hear her on the phone, and she goes, "Oh, you would give me more? Oh my, I didn't realize you could get that much more. One hundred seventy-five dollars, right?" So she's talking out loud, live streaming, and uh, and so you know it was a part of us going, "Oh," and all of a sudden she said. You know, I have this young couple in my house right now, and they're so sweet. I'm going to give it to them. Now, I, I don't know quite how to explain this. It, 
it wasn't that we felt, oh my, we prayed and we got a miracle. It wasn't like we said, you know, we've got this great faith. It was like um, the father just leaned in and kissed us. It was our first um, provision kiss we had ever had from God. And uh, we were humbled and um, surprised and delighted and uh, felt loved. And, and so we just kept doing that over the years. When we went to Bible school, we didn't have much. And I remember one time in Bible school, I'll give you two quick stories. One time in Bible school, we, uh, it was Christmas time, and we just did not have much, no money to buy each other anything. And I said to Gail, I said, honey, it would be great if I could just get, I, might, I didn't have much margin. I said, if I could just pick up an extra job with a few extra hours during Christmas, then we'll be able to, to get some Christmas presents for each other and stuff. And, um, and so we prayed about it. And then the next day I'm out on the school parking lot and I'm walking around. I didn't know quite what to do to find a job. I thought, well, I'd just check the paper. But I hadn't gotten a paper or anything. And one, there was a guy standing about 20 feet away or 15 feet away. And he was saying, man, we're looking for someone to help us at the store just during Christmas. And I went, whoo. <laughs> so I ran over there. I said, I'm your man. <laughs> and so those little stories like that, they showed us that God seems to want to engage with humanity. And when people just ask and dare to trust, things happen that I don't think would have happened. Uh, one more, there was a... a a couple that owed, owed Gail and I some money. We were only in our early 20s, but we had given this couple a couple, three, $400 for a desperate situation they were in. They told us they'd pay us back, but they hadn't for over 18 months, 24 months. And uh, we could have used the money. We were in a season. We thought, oh my gosh, we just, in Bible school, both of us working, we just could barely make ends meet. And uh, so we prayed. And I thought about calling them or, or writing them, uh, but... I didn't feel comfortable with that. So we prayed. We said, God, would you help them? Would you help them financially, Lord? And would you help them to remember us in the midst of that? And it was about two weeks, a week or, or two weeks or three weeks later, we get our first letter from them with a portion of a check that said, hey, you guys, we really just lately started feeling we need to start paying you back. And they paid us over two or three checks and paid us over, which was just enough to get us through that season we were in. I'm saying that to you just to say that uh, Gail and I have been part of dozens and dozens and dozens of stories ourselves and those that we have pastored of God's divine provision. Um, so, trust God. And then the last secret, secret number six, is um, resist the power of and the love of money. Money is a kind of odd power to it. Jesus actually called it mammon, which was a kind of a demonic influence that was in the world. Uh, somehow money vies for our devotion. It tries to be a god in our life. If you talk with people or know very many people that have lots of money, a lot of times they feel like they can do anything, which is that kind of omnipotence, right? Or they feel like they know everything. It's kind of omniscience. There's somehow people with lots of money get under the influence of it. And we have to fight that. We have to fight. It doesn't mean if you, you actually can have that stuff hitting you when you don't have money. I mean, you just that longing, loving, grabbing, right, kind of thing inside. And it can still form you in ways that are not healthy 
ways that are not godly. Um, Paul puts a great cap on this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the best gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, he writes, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he goes on later in the chapter to say, tell those that are rich to be generous and to be kind and to not trust in the uncertainty of wealth. So even though God wants to engage with us, it's kind of a sketchy deal. You've got to watch out and guard your heart. So, all right, here's what I'm trying to tell you, convince you of. God wants to help you in the area of your money, in the area of prosperity, in the area of your financial life. Work hard, don't work too hard. Be generous, but not too generous. And trust God. And lastly, do not love money or yield to its power. You don't have to be in total control of the outcome of your life. You'll never be able to do that. But you do have some control in these areas. And things can be different from you, even in the midst of situations like we've been walking through pandemics where culture and economies are really, uh, in some sectors, really have gotten hurt. God hasn't abandoned you. We can trust God, and it will be better. So that's all I got.